Hello again. This is Jim Bartlett. Welcome to my podcast, which is a companion to my website. The hits just keep on coming. This episode is a collection of stories about a radio person's life at certain specific times of the day, the week, and the year. It's called Overnights, Weekends, and Holidays. Although daytime-only AM radio still exists, most other stations operate 24 hours a day, seven days a week now. But it was not always that way. Once, most stations, even in big cities, signed on in the morning and signed off at night. The times varied. If your AM station is licensed to operate only from sunrise to sunset, the time changes with the seasons. Here in Wisconsin, that means maybe 5.30 a.m. till 8.30 p.m. at the height of summer, but 7.15 till 4.30 in the depths of winter. A station I worked for in Illinois signed on at 7.15 and off at 4.30 year-round, figuring it was just too much trouble to change times every month. Stations not restricted to daytime operation could sign on whenever they wanted, 5 a.m. or 6 a.m., and they signed off at will, too, midnight or 2 a.m. or whenever. Back in the 70s, a progressive rock station here in Madison signed on at 10 a.m. and off at 3 a.m., matching the habits of their young listeners. My hometown FM station signed off at 9 p.m. except on Sundays when they shut it down at 6. This is what it was like to be the person who signed on and signed off. You'd arrive for your shift in the morning and the building would be quiet. You might hear police scanners in the newsroom or the weather radio or the news guy at work, if there was one, but the monitors in the building would be silent. You'd flip on the lights in the studio and warm up the transmitter. You'd turn the filaments on first and let them run for a few minutes before turning the plates on. I could not and cannot tell you exactly what a filament or a plate is, but the terminology is as familiar as my own name. The plates created the carrier wave on which the programming would be broadcast. When you turned them on, you'd hear a bump on the studio monitors with the beginning of the carrier. Federal regulations require the operator to note on the station's transmitter log the precise minute at which the carrier wave came on. How long the carrier would be on before programming began was left to the operator's discretion, maybe a few seconds if the station was signing on at the earliest time permitted by its license, or maybe a couple of minutes, or maybe longer. Some stations would begin the broadcast day with a simple station identification announcement, but it wasn't uncommon to hear a longer announcement, not just call letters and city of license, but sometimes the street address of the studios and or the transmitter, the station's frequency and or the station's power measured in watts. And then, for you, the DJ, it was showtime. Today, the jock with the first shift of the day steps into a programming stream that's already running, and that is not the same experience as opening the floodgates yourself. That bump in the morning was like announcing your presence to the world. I am DJ. Hear me roar. At sign-off, the procedure was reversed. The station identification was similar to the one used at sign-on, maybe just a legal ID, maybe more. Once the audio was finished, you'd turn off the plates to kill the carrier wave, taking care to log the precise time, and then you could turn the filaments off. Although it was common for TV stations to play the Star-Spangled Banner at sign-off, it was less common in radio. A few stations did it, like that one in Illinois I worked for. When I became program director there, I dumped the anthem and replaced it with R&B singer Jesse Belvin doing Good Night, My Love. From the first day you ever set foot in a radio studio, you are indoctrinated with the idea that silence, dead air, is a bad, bad thing. For that reason, those moments after sign-off always seemed out of kilter to me, no matter how often I experienced them. I always tried to get out of the building as quickly as I could, and not just because I was off the clock and I wanted to go home. The silence seemed unnatural and almost spooky. It wouldn't be long, however, before the morning crew would show up and start the new day with another bump. The first 24-hour radio station in America was KGFJ in Los Angeles, starting in 1927. Other stations in other cities followed, but the overnight radio dial didn't start to get crowded until after World War II, when many of the major market holdouts finally gave in. 
As the pace of city life increased and there was simply more going on during the dark hours, some stations gambled that they could make money being on all night. Some adopted 24-hour operation for other reasons. In 1953, the Conrad Alert System created a daisy chain of primary and secondary radio stations that was intended to link every station in the country to the same network in case of a national emergency, such as a nuclear attack. The system still exists today, and it's known as the Emergency Alert System, after a few decades as the Emergency Broadcast System. After KNBR in San Francisco was designated the primary Conrad station for Northern California in 1953, it ceased programming at midnight, but left the carrier wave on all night and identified once an hour. If the Russians dropped the big one, it would be their responsibility to alert other stations in the region, and they needed to be ready. Other primary Conrad stations stayed on, too, but with programming. Elsewhere, many stations felt that their service responsibility didn't end after midnight. Others simply considered an overnight show of some kind to be a better lead-in for their morning shows than silence, even if they never made a dime between midnight and 5 a.m. We think of overnight operation today as 24-7, but a lot of places were 24-6. They would sign off on Sunday night and sign on again Monday morning. This was common until maybe 40 years ago. It became less common as transmitter equipment got more reliable and didn't require as much regular maintenance, which had to be done when the station was off the air. It made the Sunday-Monday overnight a great time for hobbyists, or insomniac listeners, to pull in distant AM stations they could not normally hear. Before the 1990s, in smaller markets, and especially in towns where they roll up the streets at 9 o'clock, it made little sense to stay on all night, or even especially late in the evening. But then came self-tending transmitters and digital automation. If you don't have to pay a disc jockey or a talk show host or a person who changes music tapes on an automation machine every couple of hours or monitors the transmitter or does other radio things, the economics of staying on overnight become far more reasonable. The likelihood of finding a sizable audience on the overnights in small market America may not be any greater today than it was during the whole of the 20th century, but whatever you can get comes cheap. However, the very automation that makes overnight radio more feasible has taken the charm out of overnight radio, at least for an old geezer such as I. In a few cities, you still hear live and local overnight shows, but they have grown exceedingly rare. Across the country, even in major markets, most of the voices you hear on the air during the overnight hours, and increasingly during the evening hours, are syndicated or pre-recorded. There's nobody in the local studio at all, and maybe nobody in the building. Even WGN in Chicago, one of America's legendary radio stations, has recently gone to overnight syndication. But years ago, practically every voice you heard on stations large and small was live, local, and in real time. The overnight shift could be a proving ground where young talents got their start, or a dumping ground where you put anybody you could find just to fill the time. There were, however, certain people who became stars on overnights and never left. In the Midwest, Yvonne Daniels, Jay Andres, Franklin McCormick, and Fred Sanders all became known far beyond Chicago thanks to AM stations that blanketed much of North America. But other cities had overnight stars whose reach was enormous. Franklin Hobbs on WCCO in Minneapolis, John R. at WLAC in Nashville, Russ Syracuse on KYA in San Francisco, Johnny Williams at KHJ in Los Angeles, and Allison Steele on WNEW in New York, to name only a few. Dale Summers on WLW in Cincinnati and Charlie Douglas on WWL in New Orleans were among those who became famous doing shows primarily aimed at long-haul truck drivers across the country. But it wasn't only large cities that had overnight stars. In smaller markets, too, there was almost always somebody with a following east of midnight, as the overnight shift was sometimes called. Midday radio jocks can often work a normal 7.30 to 3.30 or 8 to 5 day. Everybody else has to adjust. 
Morning people go to work while it's dark and are often home by noon. Afternoon jocks get used to eating dinner at 8 or 9 in the evening. But doing overnights was not merely an adjustment. It was a lifestyle. Some overnighters slept in shifts, maybe a few hours after getting home in the morning and a few more before going back at night, which left time in the middle of the day for normal dayside life and or a few hours of office work back at the station. Others took up full-time residence on the night side. If their working day ran from 10 p.m. to 6 a.m., they found it easier on their bodies to keep to something like those hours on their days off. It is a weird little wrinkle in my radio career that in all my years, I've done exactly one overnight. Not one overnight gig, but a single overnight shift, an 11 p.m. to 5 a.m. fill-in sometime in the early 90s. It's not that I wouldn't have done more, it's just that I was never asked but I've known people who live that life for more than just one night, and they will tell you that it's a fraternity there on the other side of the clock. A friend who did overnights in Madison for several years tells about meeting up with his overnight competitors from other stations once they all got off the air and having breakfast together. But the fraternity had a much broader membership, made up of those who were also, for one reason or another, up all night. Truckers, nurses, shift workers, insomniacs, and anyone grateful to have a friendly voice keeping them company during the long, dark hours. And the overnight jocks appreciated them, too, It was and is a solitary occupation, being on the air after hours, especially in the overnight hours. It's good for a jock's morale to know that, yes, there is somebody else up at this hour, and that what you do matters to them. Much more familiar to me than working overnights is working on holidays. Today, the same automation that makes it possible for stations to run unattended overnight makes it possible to do the same on holidays, which means that a not insignificant percentage of on-air people who have come up in the last 30 years or so may never have had to work a Thanksgiving Day, Christmas Day, or New Year's Day. I'm not envious of them. I actually feel kind of sorry for them. When I got into the business over 40 years ago, working holidays from Thanksgiving and Christmas to St. Swithin's Day and the Vernal Equinox was how you paid your dues and earned your stripes. As you gained seniority, you frequently became exempt from that duty, and I never begrudged anybody who took advantage. Some of us, however, as we gain seniority, or age, or wisdom, or maybe the opposite of wisdom, discover that we actually like working on holidays. I certainly do. Somebody has to serve the public interest, convenience, and necessity, and not everybody's qualified to do it, so why not me? On Christmas Day, all you might have done was track Ray Conniff records and read sponsors' holiday greetings, but you were there, which is the main thing listeners expect of their radio stations. And on those holidays when the weather or the news was bad, you were there for that, too. My single favorite day of the year to be on the air is Christmas Eve, and I never mind a Thanksgiving shift either, as long as there's time for a nice meal at some point. During his early years at WLS in Chicago, Larry Lujak used to volunteer for holidays, telling his boss he was happy to work so the guys with kids could spend time with their families, even though Lujak had a wife and kid of his own. On my hometown station, the general manager almost always did a shift on Christmas morning every year. I double-shifted one snowy Christmas Eve, but one of my radio pals fondly remembers triple-shifting during a Christmas blizzard one year. Another remembers a conference call during the wee hours of a New Year's Day, three friends on three stations in three states doing their respective shows but talking to each other while the records were playing. Still another remembers the remarkable generosity of listeners who called the station to make sure the jock or the newsman they were hearing would be getting a holiday dinner at some point, and sometimes offering an invitation to one. On holidays, radio people on the job are like cops, nurses, first responders, convenience store clerks, and hookers. We're providing a vital public service that's needed every day. It's what we're called to do. It's the life we chose. And we're happy to do it for you, even if you don't invite us to your house for dinner. Well, not all of us are happy to do it. I once had a colleague who put in for Christmas Day off every year on the 4th of July. 
She once told me that she'd quit before she'd work on Christmas, which wasn't fair to her colleagues who may have wanted Christmas off themselves one year. When I was responsible for scheduling, I did my best to accommodate my staff's requests to work or be off on specific holidays. Sometimes I made my own holiday plans around theirs. One year, after I made repeated requests, one of my part-timers still didn't tell me when he could work, so I scheduled him for Christmas Eve from 6 to midnight. Can't do it, he said on December 22nd. I have to referee a basketball game that night. A basketball game on Christmas Eve, I asked. Some of these little towns play basketball on Christmas Eve, he said. Well, they don't, and I knew it, and he had to have known that I knew it, but he thought he'd try to brazen it out anyhow. Like Santa, I had made my list and checked it twice, and this wasn't the first time he'd complicated my life during his tenure at the station. Since he insisted on sticking to his bogus excuse, I fired him. Merry Christmas to you too, fella. Have a nice time at the game. I've worked 7 to midnight on Christmas Eve myself. Once I worked a double shift on Christmas Day to get New Year's off, in accordance with the station owner's policy that if you wanted one year-end holiday off, you had to double up on the other. That was the only year I ever minded working, because the policy was just another little way in which that owner indicated his general disrespect for his on-air staff. He once told us, salespeople make money for me, you people cost me money. But that's another story, and one I'm not telling today. Given the choice, I would do the afternoon show on Christmas Eve every year. It's a shift that captivated me when I was a boy, which is a story I've told on my website several times. I can never forget how it felt to listen to Christmas coming in over the radio as night fell, and I like to bring a little of that vibe to the shows I do on Christmas Eve today. A few years ago, I was the last person out of the building at 6 o'clock on Christmas Eve, and I didn't want to go. During the decade I was entirely out of radio, I would sometimes surf the dial on Christmas Eve, listening to what my brethren were doing, but I don't do that anymore. With automation and voice tracking, the Christmas Eve show on your hometown station may have been recorded three days before, and maybe by somebody living a thousand miles away. It's just not the same without that element of real time, without the sense that the person on the air has given up some of his own time at that moment to spend it with you. My experience with working holidays started early, during my first Christmas with a paying radio job when I was a sophomore in college. I was disappointed to find myself scheduled to work on Christmas Day from noon to six. It was the first major break in the family Christmas routine in my lifetime. To minimize the disruption, I planned to drive the hour from home to the station and back again the same day. Before I left, my mother packed leftovers from our Christmas Eve turkey dinner, and as I began my Christmas broadcast day, I enjoyed what is still the most elegant of the many studio meals I have eaten in my career. I have other studio dining stories, but I'm not telling those today either. On the subject of how young broadcasters used to earn their stripes and pay their dues, let's talk about the bottom of the food chain job that is weekend board operator. Nowadays, syndicated countdown shows or public service programs get loaded onto the station's hard drive to play at off hours on Saturday or Sunday, or they come in on a satellite or internet link all by themselves. But before the rise of self-operating systems, those programs had to be played by a live human being. Powerline, American Top 40, and other syndicated shows would sometimes come to the station on reels of tape, although they could also be pressed on vinyl. It was the operator's job to play the show segments in the proper order and to put in whatever local commercials had been sold. Taped shows usually had to be shipped back to the syndicator so the tapes themselves could be sent on to other stations or erased and reused. It was the operator's responsibility to make sure they got back to the program director's desk so they could be returned. There were other tasks that fell to the weekend board operator. For example, it was often my job on autumn Saturdays to get University of Iowa football broadcasts on the air and put the local commercials in. Today, big-time college and professional sports play-by-play -play feeds come to you on dedicated audio channels via either a satellite or Internet link, and they can run by themselves. 
To get the Iowa broadcast, I had to dial a toll-free phone number to connect to the feed and then put the studio phone on the air. Some high school sports broadcasts are still done over the phone today. The weekend board operator's job was to make sure the programs got on, stayed on, and that the commercials ran as scheduled. That's it. He or she did not get to talk much. Sometimes you'd have to read the weather forecast or a commercial, but that was it. And if you aspire to do more, after a while, that's not enough. I once hired a high school girl with an interest in a radio career to board up a couple of shows on Sunday nights until 11 o'clock, after which she was to return things to the automation and stay until midnight. A couple of months later, and completely by accident, I learned that she'd taken it upon herself to do her own show between 11 and midnight. She wasn't especially apologetic when she got caught, and I felt like I had to sack her, which I did. The sorry thing is that if she'd simply asked me first, I'd have probably let her do it. Young jocks have to start somewhere. And once, that meant overnights, weekends, and holidays. If you have enjoyed this podcast, I hope you will visit my website, The Hits Just Keep On Coming, which you can find by putting that phrase into your favorite search engine or by visiting thjkoc.net. And if you have enjoyed this podcast, I hope you will consider listening to other episodes of it. Find them at the usual places, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, and Stitcher. There's also an episode archive at my website. Bookmark my SoundCloud or subscribe to my website to be notified about future episodes, should there be any more. It costs me a couple of hundred dollars each year to maintain my website and produce this podcast. There's a link at my SoundCloud where you can make a contribution if you wish, and I thank those who've already done so. If you're listening to this episode on a platform where you can give it a like or a positive review, I hope you'll do that. This is Jim Bartlett. Thanks for listening. 